You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. I live in Chicago, and right about now, the leaves are falling and so are the temperatures. This makes me want to grab a glass of red, find a fire pit, and a cozy sweater. If you are looking for a wine recommendation, may I suggest the 2018 Hannah Cabernet from Sonoma County. If you prefer white wine, the 2021 Hannah Chardonnay is a great option. This female-led winery offers absolutely delicious options for your fall table. Great pairing with more savory dishes or to share a bottle with friends. Hannah Winery brings the rich and unique terroir of Sonoma County right to your home in every glass. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Mary Calvi. When I had this chance, and I felt very, very honored to be able to have this information, I thought, I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to try my hardest to tell a story in the right way that deserves to be told. Mary Calvi is an Emmy Award-winning reporter and anchor at WCBS in New York City. She's also the author of two historical fiction novels, including Dear George, Dear Mary, a novel of George Washington's first love. And she has recently been transcribing love letters of Teddy Roosevelt to and from his first love, Alice Lee. This has led to a second historical fiction novel called If a Poem Could Live and Breathe, a novel of Teddy Roosevelt's first love. On this President's Day, I thought it would be fun to talk to an old friend, Mary Calvi, about her creative endeavor that marries her journalistic talent with a splash of imagination. Please enjoy this interview with Mary Calvi. 
Mary! I am so excited to see you. Thank you for doing this. This is going to be fun. (laughs) So I'm going to begin this podcast the way I begin all my podcasts, by asking the guest, where is your favorite restaurant? So uh, you are lucky enough to live in sort of the oasis, the, the, the most wonderful place in the world when it comes to food. So this is kind of a tough question for you. But if you could take me to any restaurant in the tri-state area, where would you take me? I would take you, Kate, to Delmonico's in Manhattan. Mm. And there's a very specific reason for that. Delmonico's was the first restaurant in the country that allowed women to dine, not accompanied by men. What? Quite is remarkable that true? to think of, but it is true that during the Gilded Age and prior to that, women could not dine without a man by her side. And, you know, department stores at that time started thinking, hey, maybe this is a good way to bring more women in. And they opened small little, uh, they called them ladies ordinaries, where you could get like a light salad or uh, maybe some fruit, but you could (laughs) never have dinner by yourself or just with your friends. And so Delmonico's decided to allow women to do it. And you'll love this piece of it. This is fabulous. Yeah. The first women that were allowed to dine at Delmonico's were journalists. Um, Mm. There was a woman, her name was Jane Cunningham Crawley. And uh, she couldn't enter a dinner um, for the New York Press Club. So she decided to take upon it herself to grab a group of women and say, we are going to figure this out. And they finally were allowed an opportunity at Delmonico's. Delmonico's still stands in the financial district. Mm -hmm. And it really is one of those places that you step back in time. And I think if we were go anywhere and they have a wonderful chef and uh, (laughs) you get to meet a lot of wonderful people there. So I think you'd have a great time having dinner with me at Delmonico's. Well, I would have a great time having dinner with you anywhere, Mary, first of all, (laughs) for for full disclosure to anyone listening that uh, Mary and I used to work together at WCBS and I adore you. And I, you were one of the very first people who actually took me out to eat when I started at WCBS. I don't know if you remember this, but you, me and Roz Abrams went out to lunch and it was one of my favorite memories of, of my time in New York because first of all, Roz alone is just so hilarious and the, so the, and you're so incredibly sweet and the two of you, it was such a nice welcome to New York and I will never forget it. So that's that's my restaurant story that involves Mary Calvi. I love where you chose. My love of restaurants actually began in the, when I worked in New York because, as you know, working the morning hours, it's very difficult to find a time to grab dinner when you have to be in bed at seven or eight. And so I would dine by myself so much. And what I learned is if you go by yourself, you can get in anywhere. Like all these restaurants that are very difficult to get in. But if you go at like 4.30, when everyone's still, when the wait staff is still coming in, you can pretty much dine everywhere. And so I really developed a love of just great restaurants, great hospitality from my time in New York, which obviously uh, stuck with me to create, to dine for, and to dine for the podcast. But I did not know that about Delmonico's, and I'm going to look at it in a different light because of it. And yes, we will definitely dine there at some point. But I am truly fascinated by your journey because you have done something that I don't know any other news anchor has done, which is really delve into the world 
of historical fiction, but more specifically in terms of the love and the love story, um, not only with your first book, but now your second. Can you tell me where did, has, have you always been a history buff? Where did this idea begin? So I'll tell you what happened when it came to writing and the first book. My husband is the mayor in our hometown in the city of Yonkers, and we both were born there and we live there and our children are there with us. And when he became the mayor, he was having his inauguration at a beautiful historic home. Those ones that you have in your little village or town and you Mm -hmm. just drive by and you never know quite what happened there. Yeah. However, when he had his inauguration, he was planning it. I had said he planned to have it at this beautiful historic home called Phillips Manor, which was the original city hall in the 1800s. But I had remembered the story when I had gone to see it as a young girl that in the 1700s, it was home to a woman who was an heiress and she was once courted by George Washington. So I thought, you the know, plot thickens. There you go. <laughs> so there you go. So I suggested to my husband that it might be worthwhile to mention in his speech that the woman who lived here was once courted by George Washington. And he asked a perfect question, which was, well, did he, you know, is it local <laughs> lore or did it really happen? And so I, I thought, Kate, as a journalist, I could find this piece of information. So I was expecting a little date or just walk in the park. And all of a sudden, it was like the documents were pouring out of the archives. And it was like, love, deception, vengeance, the American (laughs) Revolution. What is going on here? And so I just, I was like knee deep in research, but I don't mean that. I really was knee deep. I mean, I just had documents everywhere. And I was finding this quite incredible story that I had never heard before. But the fact was she was the richest woman in the colonies at the time. And uh, not only did George Washington want to court her, but all of these other men. So by finding this story, I wanted to give her a voice. She was named a traitor in the American Revolution. So it goes on and on and on. And I thought the best way to tell it was as a novel, because I would be able to really be part of that culture and understand what was happening when it came to not only this relationship, but also everything that was happening around them, cuisine and dance and and culture and just really immerse myself in that time. Okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Time out, time out. This (laughs) is so interesting to me, Mary. What was your major in college? Journalism. Okay. And have you always been a history buff? I mean, has that, have you always been interested in watching the History Channel? Was there, are you someone who reads a lot of nonfiction history? Like, has that always been a passion of yours? Honestly, Kate, really what it came down to for me was doing something different. I mean, Mm -hmm. I hadn't I'm, I'm not one of those people. No. I mean, I, I was, I am a nerd with a capital N. Yes. However, I was not at the Library of Congress looking through documents before this, nor was I, you know, going into readings of the presidents. No, I, I have to be honest. I really had to almost, you know, go back and really research the American revolution, you know, just going back to like, who, what, where, when, and why. So it was really very new to me. And the reason why I was drawn to it was because I guess in journalism, we call it an exclusive. Mm -hmm. So for me in the Mm -hmm. literary world, it was a story that had never been told. And that specifically is what sparked my interest. But what you created with your first book is not nonfiction. It is fiction, right? Based on reality, correct? 
That's correct. It's historical fiction. But this is what this is what's so fascinating to me, Mary, because obviously you're employing your journalism skills with this, right? So it's really, really sparking that part of you that got into journalism in the first place. But also the fiction part of this is sparking the other side of your brain that is super creative and allowing you to to dream up a scenario and imagine. Talk to me about that dichotomy of all of these facts telling the story and also imagining a world that you had to kind of fill in and paint yourself. The reason why I came to the conclusion that it needed to be historical fiction is that I had these beautiful documents. I had a lot of the writings of George Washington. However, the voice of, at that time, Mary, would have not been heard, I don't believe, if I only stuck to the research that I had of Mary, because at the time, women's writings were not preserved. And so if I were to do it as nonfiction, I felt that I wouldn't give her the shot she deserved mm. because I was only going to go by the man, the writing of the of the, the male voice, the, the, the male, male voice, voice is yeah. what only exists. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what has been a problem for nonfiction writers who really want to focus on those years. Mm -hmm. You don't have the writings of the women. So what was I to do? I would have given her a paragraph. And so instead, what I was able to do was figure out where she was, th those surrounding her. And oftentimes I had to stick with the writings that were preserved by the men in her world in order to be able to tell her story. Mm -hmm. And it was really that situation that um, I found myself in. And that's when I decided writing a novel would make the most sense. Mm. Isn't it interesting that we always assume that like women date men, you know, a lot of them are, are motivated by the finances of the male, but this is such a, a turn on the head, right? Because this woman, right, had so much money that clearly people who perhaps had political aspirations knew they needed. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? It certainly is. Kate, you make a really good point. This is the situation. She was the richest single woman in the colonies at the time. Mm -hmm. George Washington was in his 20s, falls in love with her. However, he's in the British Army at the time. This is 20 years before the American Revolution. And his own commanders want to court this woman because mm. of her wealth. Mm. And that's where this deception and that's where the vengeance comes into play. And she chooses another man and Washington quits the army within two weeks and really shows a real hatred for them. And so this is where I found myself and what I was saying earlier about being knee deep in research. I couldn't get out of it because I was just completely taken by the story. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. I live in Chicago, and right about now, the leaves are falling and so are the temperatures. This makes me want to grab a glass of red, find a fire pit, and a cozy sweater. If you are looking for a wine recommendation, may I suggest the 2018 Hannah Cabernet from Sonoma County. If you prefer white wine, the 2021 Hannah Chardonnay is a great option. This female-led winery offers absolutely delicious options for your fall table. Great pairing with more savory dishes or to share a bottle with friends. Hannah Winery brings the rich and unique terroir of Sonoma County right to your home in every glass. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. You know, it's interesting. I think back when I was like in middle school and high school and a lot of my friends, I, this wasn't me, but a lot of my friends watched soap operas and they would they would be so ensconced in these soap operas and I never really understood. But what I'm seeing is like, what was it like to be knee deep in this research and not only the facts of the case, but also you yourself having to imagine a world, like talk about true escapism. There is no question about it. And when I was doing it, I had to play classical music. I drank out of a cup that was out of the 1700s. You're like method acting, Mary. (laughs) I I had to. I had to because here we are, you know, in the 21st century and I'm going back to the 1700s. And so what did help was that the the homes that she lived in still exist Mm. and are still standing. So I did a lot of work and research in her homes. And that really was helpful because you know what it sounded like when you were walking on the planks of the floor in the hallway, what the wallpaper would have looked like if she was sitting down on the floor in tears, you know, and Mm. and being able to see out the window and what that would have looked like. That was very helpful and I believe necessary in order for me to have created the story. Now, you, it sounds like a Herculean effort to do your first book alone, but you know you must have enjoyed it enough to take on the second book, which is called If a Poem Could Live and Breathe, a novel of Teddy Roosevelt's first love. Can you share the inspiration for taking on the second project? And what did you learn from doing the first book that you brought into the second? When the first book came out, Immediately, I was asked to consider writing a second novel. And when I thought about my experience with the first, the one thing I really enjoyed was being able to give this woman a voice Mm -hmm. that she had never had before. 
And I knew the story of Teddy Roosevelt and his first love. Teddy Roosevelt is from the east side of Manhattan. He served in the state assembly. My husband also served in the state assembly. And I had known this small story about Teddy Roosevelt and Alice Hathaway Lee. I wouldn't want to give anything away. However, I knew. Don't that ruin the book, Mary. Story <laughs> that was very emotional. And so the thing about Alice is that she's been dismissed and disparaged in history, really erased mm. from Teddy Roosevelt's life, I believe, by those who have studied her before. And oftentimes they would write that none of the correspondence between the two of them exists, none of the photos. And I thought, let me go back and just look at Teddy Roosevelt's writings about his first love, Alice, and to see what he was saying. So I went to the, his journals, which all exist, which is very exciting. We're talking about 1878. And when you look at his journal entries, he wrote in his journal every day. He writes about Alice constantly. I mean, just mm -hmm. Alice, Alice, Alice. And this is going on for years. And I thought to myself, if a man was so deeply in love with a woman where passion was weaving through every part of his being. How is it possible that he would not have treasured love letters or correspondence mm. with this woman? How is so it? It was a hunch. Was, it was like your instinct telling you. It this. was a hunch. Kate, that's exactly what it was. It was a hunch that there was more to the story. And having experienced what I did with the first one uh, with Georgia Mary, I thought, let me look. And if it's there, I will find it because it wasn't fair as to what was being said about this woman mm -hmm. and what was being done to her, I believe, in mm -hmm. history. So I set out to see what I could find. And lo and behold, Kate, it was incredible. Treasure trove of love letters exists between Teddy Roosevelt and Alice Hathaway Lee to and from each other. The writings are beautifully preserved. I had a chance to see the originals from the Gilded Age. And I was re I was in tears, mm. really, because I knew what happened. I knew how she's been treated. And so I thought she deserves a chance. And I could not not do the story. Mm. And there were times where I thought, well, I need to give this to someone else to do the story, which is actually what happened the first time around. My plan was to give the research to someone else. But here I was with all of these incredible research documents, and I thought, let me give it a shot. And so I just really dove in, and I was really inspired by her story as well as his. And I wanted to tell a story that I felt was closer to Alice than anything had been told before. And I think what I really enjoyed was hearing her words. Because when you're reading somebody's letters, and especially letters from when someone is in, you know, 19 and 20, there's such authenticity to them. Mm -hmm. There are these beautiful, genuine affirmations of love that you probably wouldn't hear when somebody is the president of the United States. I'm sure they're a lot more careful in their writings. And in this case, Teddy Roosevelt was so deeply in love with this woman that everything he's writing is just so beautiful and intimate. And her words back to him are so lovely that it wouldn't be fair not to put these in writing. So most of these love letters have never been published before. It did take Kate quite a bit of time to transcribe them. So that was meticulous work. I saw a couple of them and I don't know how you read the writing. I mean, I was like, I had to like look at them several times. I mean, that must've been very difficult. 
to even know what they were saying. You know what it was like? I could compare it to reading Shakespeare. You start reading Shakespeare and it takes a little while yes. for you to finally go, okay, now yes. I'm in, now I'm in the rhythm. Now I, right. now I see it and understand it. So that's what that was like as well. It, it takes a little while to get comfortable with the writing and the way the verbiage, but once you do, um, you're all in, you know, and, uh, you can't put it down. When you think about both of your books and the voice that you have been able to give to two women who were really footnotes in history and their story was never really told, what does that mean to you personally to be able to sort of resurrect their, their being, their memory, their presence, their persona? I really wanted to right the wrong. And this was the way I could do it, especially because I believe they had a much greater impact on these men. And there's no question their effect on George Washington when it came to Mary and Teddy Roosevelt when it came to Alice. And so it was one of those moments, you know, when it actually gets into print that I could at least have a moment to say, Phew, you finally have your voice heard. Mm. There are so many other stories that are out there and it's going to take people realizing that the research does exist. The documents do exist. It's going to take a lot more work to be able to get these voices heard because, you know, nowadays is the digital world and the physical world when it comes to archives have sort of collided. So it's the perfect time to start the work into history and retelling these stories in a new way. When I set out to find these documents, you know, if I had started 20 years ago, I would have to go from, you know, London to Canada, to California, to Washington, DC, and go into the archives and look at these documents. However, now so much is listed digitally where you can see at least the collections that they have. And by seeing the collections, you're able to contact the librarians and say, by chance, do you have this one document that I'm looking for? And there were times where I had to travel, certainly, but there were other times where I would be able to see these as digital assets. And that was very helpful in order to piecing together these puzzles in history. What did you learn about love from these two love stories? In regard to Teddy Roosevelt, uh, he was quite the romantic. I mean, his writings may be the most romantic writings I have ever seen myself. What made them romantic? They were very intimate and very deep, and he calls her every sweet name that you could ever imagine. However, I feel like as you're reading them, there's also this insecurity where he's nervous he's going to lose her. He's that deeply in love with her that he mm -hmm. can't imagine that he's good enough for her, and that was really sweet. Um, when it comes to George Washington, believe it or not, he wrote romantic poetry. And he has this love letter that is from the 1700s that was very deep and moving. So you never think certainly of George Washington, you know, you think of the man in marble or the man on the dollar bill, but you never see him as a man. Mm -hmm. And here he is with this different take It's a completely different take on George Washington. But we're talking about George 22 on here. We're talking about Teddy uh, at 19. So you can understand that there, things may have changed along the way before they became presidents. You know, I'm wondering as you're crafting these characters, because you are crafting them, even though it's based on reality, did these characters stay with you after you wrote the book? Uh, and, and this is a little bit of an out, out of the box question, but I'm just wondering if they, in a way, followed you 
there's no question that I hold both of them dear. And when I've spoken to their families, I've been thrilled to be able to present even their families, their descendants with stories that maybe they hadn't heard of or documents that they they hadn't heard of. I, I did speak with Mary's family and I felt like there were pieces that they should know. And the same with Alice to be able to share that with some of her cousins, the families, that's been really special, but it's true. I think when you really spend so much time with a woman in history, you definitely take something with you as well. In Alice's case, I think that I would love to be more like her when it came to telling people what they should hear. You know, Mm. let's not gloss this over. This is what it is. This is what you're saying. And this is why it's incorrect. And let me change your mind. And I believe she changed people's minds through her actions. And that was quite exciting to be able to take with me and understand maybe more about myself and, you know, inspire me to be stronger in that way. When you think about how women's voices were lost, I mean, I think I feel like that's central to the work that you're doing is bringing these voices back. What have you learned about telling your own story, the importance of it for women everywhere now in 2023? Well, first of all, it's going to be very difficult to be able to tell these types of stories because text messages and emojis just don't Where are the beautiful love letters of a day gone by? Where are those love letters? All right. Just the happy face and the hearts is just not going to be the same. Mm -hmm. So if people have the chance, I would say, write a love letter Mm -hmm. to someone you care about. Mm -hmm. Write down your thoughts in a journal. These are things that, you know, we go on in life and everybody's so busy, but maybe we should Mm -hmm. remember what life was like today. Mm-hmm. and tomorrow and the next day, because 10 years goes by and 20 years goes by. And then all of a sudden you, you go back and go, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I remember I wrote a, a greeting card to someone once. I wonder <laughs> if they still have it. You know, wouldn't it be special if we thought, let's change the way we're doing things and spend some time writing to someone. The beautiful mm-hmm. piece of seeing love letters is that you can almost like know what it would be like to pull them out of the envelope and to, you know, to hold them in your hand. It's just even just the feel of them and the feel of the linen paper on your hand must have been so special. And to think, you know, it took a long time to get these letters. So, you know, it would be sometimes, especially in the 1700s, it was months before they got a letter. So you can't even imagine the excitement to be able to know, oh, here they are. The messenger has arrived and I have a letter. I mean, it's just, I think that it would be really lovely to be able to just in a small way, preserve some of the memories of today. I think about my dad, he would save every Valentine's Day card that my mom would write. And on Valentine's Day, he would put all of the cards from, you know, 30 years past all over the house. So you could go and read from 1972 and from, you know, 1994 and read them. And it was so, to me, that was so romantic because it was just a way of of keeping cards and keeping memories alive. So you're absolutely right. There's something so special. It's a lost art of, of writing letters. You know, when I look at everything you've done with these two books, and I look at your career as a journalist at WCBS and beyond, I'm really struck by how you took a 
I'm sure it doesn't feel this way to you, but sort of a hard left and really went down a rabbit hole, pursued a curiosity and kind of carved out an entirely different lane and niche for yourself. And I'm wondering just like what this process has taught you about not only the work you do as a journalist, but kind of what you want to say to the world. I would say that sometimes life offers you opportunity and you have to decide whether you're prepared to take that opportunity. Hmm. So often, you know, mentally, physically, whatever it is, we don't prepare ourselves for moments like this. And I think that I just had that one beautiful moment in my life where this opportunity came up and I was prepared to be able to say yes. And so I think it was very fortunate that it was in that moment in my life, because if it had been a couple of years before or a couple of years later, I may not have had the mental capacity to say, okay, I'll take on this monster project. So it really reminds me that we have to, as much as we can, just be prepared for opportunity to be able to say yes and not let everything else weigh us down. And Mm. I agree, it's completely not anything I would have ever imagined in my life. But when I had this chance and I felt very, very honored to be able to have this information, I thought I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to try my hardest to tell a story in the right way that deserves to be told. And so it's really exciting, I have to say. And just, I feel very fortunate to have been able to find these stories that nobody else has found before. And when you mentioned the rabbit hole, truthfully, I went down the rabbit hole and the advice you always get is get go down the rabbit hole, but don't spend too much time, you know, come back up because you have a lot of writing to do. I just lived in there. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm just going to swim in this. It's wonderful. I loved it every minute of it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get out of the rabbit hole for a really long, long time. And I was really fine with it. And so sometimes you can't listen to everybody else's <laughs> advice because truthfully, there were a lot of folks who were like, you're crazy. How are you in the world? Are you going to write a novel about the 1700s, George Washington in his 20s? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's true. So yeah, a lot of times I think, Mary, you are really cuckoo. And I am. And so it does require a little bit of that in order to do things like this. Well, cheers to you, Mary. Cheers for A, pursuing your passion, B, leaning into your own innate journalistic abilities and bringing something to books now beautiful to life. It's been a pleasure talking to you and hearing a little bit about your process. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at to dine for TV and Facebook at to dine for with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of to dine for the podcast, American national Lavazza and Terlato wine group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor, John Golmer to the loyal followers of this program. Cheers. Stay hungry and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.